Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, February the 17th, 2024. A Saturday, and I'm working. Supposed to be. The weekend, you remember those old bumper stickers uh, thanking unions for bringing us the weekend? They don't right. seem to be doing much these days. We're all working too much. Yesterday, we did a show. Uh, that was the week with my old friend Keith Tier, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, investor, thinker, technologist. Um, he believes that uh, AI is about to revolutionize the world. It's about, indeed, to make most people who work on movies redundant. So the big question, of course, is with all this technology, what are we going to do with our free time and what will work look like or not look like? My guest today has done a lot of thinking about this, uh, not in his free time. He's a professional historian and he's written a book about it, Free Time, The History of an Elusive Ideal. Gary uh, S. Cross is joining us from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, Gary, congratulations on the book. It's just out. Thank you. Is, um, is our obsession now with AI replacing our work, creating not enough or too much free time? Is this something that has come up time and time again over the last 200 years? Or is there something different about today's debate about work and AI? Well, it's come up repeatedly with mechanization and in the 50s automation uh, you know tendency to automate factories and and so forth um, long time economists have assumed that when new technology would take away jobs uh, that it uh, would lead to new jobs uh, occupational migration is sometimes called um, my thinking is that probably that process has been changed with AI, uh, it may be my pessimism, but I do think that there's a, 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 real, uh, a real threat, not just to manual laborers, to farmers and miners and that, uh, that type from the past, but, but also to uh, white collar workers, programmers, uh, the people that make movies. And that'll produce free time, but it may be more in the form of unemployed time. And that's that's a real threat. In the past, people have thought about automation and industrialization and its threat to work, work opportunities. Uh, the way to deal with that is to reduce regular work time. People share the work that was available and provide more free time for everyone but free time that was based on employment rather than unemployment. Gary, what are you and I doing talking on a Saturday afternoon? It's early evening in uh, in Pennsylvania. I'm sure you've got better things to do. I probably should have better things to do on a Saturday afternoon in California. Is it because we, we seem to be working all the time these days? I'm a freelance broadcaster. You're an academic and writer. Is the problem is that there isn't any separation between free time and work? Well, of course, I'm retired officially, but I'm 
still writing and I still teach because I don't want to give those things up. So I'm very much a product of the work ethic, as I'm sure you are. The part of the difference that's happened, part of the change that's happened more recently is that um, is particularly with with things like computer setups, uh, the traditional the wall between work and non-work has kind of broken down. In a certain way, we've kind of reverted back to uh, the, the pre-industrial period where, where people uh, work and live in the same time and place. Uh, in the old days, in a cottage or at a farm, today uh, and in through our connections with uh, uh, the internet. Which has invaded which, though, Gary? Is it work invading free time or is it free time invading work? Many of the, the big tech companies out in California have designed their offices to be places of leisure. Or, of course, companies like Google and Facebook, people work sure. as hard as ever. Is, right. that, is there, shall we say, you talk about free time as an elusive ideal, and, mm -hmm. and we'll get to that. But it's also a very seductive ideal, isn't it? Well, seductive in the sense that uh, for a very long time, people have felt that um, uh, freedom from obligation, uh, from not just toil, but being accountable to others, particularly to an employer, uh, asking you to do things that you might rather not do, or at least at one time or another, uh, that that freedom from all that is, uh, in some sense, a human right, and that it should expand with uh, improvements in productivity. Um, but um, but I, I you know I do see your point that there is a a kind of a, a, a mixture of of work and non work, and that certainly has come about through the uh, the introduction of these new technologies. You've talked about the idea of a human right. Um, Gary, of course, yeah. the very idea of a human right was invented in the Enlightenment, particularly by sure. the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Right. Um, another figure of that time seems to have been really relevant in terms of this ideal of free time. Uh, Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, of course, famously wrote, man was born free and everywhere he's in chains, meaning that we seem to be chained to labor. And of course, out of Rousseau, we get to Marx. Pre-Rousseau or pre the Enlightenment, how did people think about free time? Well, uh, for most people who were probably like most of our ancestors, laborers on farms or in uh, craft production of one sort or another, um, they, uh, uh, they thought about free time as something that comes seasonally. Uh, like in long periods of festivals or intermittently when the, the work that they needed to do uh, was stopped for one reason, bad weather, uh, poor transportation, or just simply the seasonal nature of uh, growing crops. Uh, so free time was, was not seen as a, uh, a right so much or a, a goal, but something that became available in certain periods when when uh, when work was was not required or not available uh, that particularly for the poor people for rich people and of course there was a very sharp division uh, the wealthy of course uh, had most of their time was free 
um, and uh, they uh, they saw it as an opportunity to compete, uh, uh, in, like in wars or in games of war, uh, or to display themselves. A few, like Aristotle and a few of the philosophers, felt that that free time should be used to to cultivate uh, uh, the mind and uh, social uh, ties with one another. Um, but uh, but it was a very different sort of attitude of uh, toward free time that we see uh, that came with uh, industrialization. So I want to get to the industrial age, but in this agricultural age of the warrior, when somebody went on a crusade, uh, was that for you a form of free time or, or, or a job, a form of labor? Or are those terms inappropriate? In well, a yeah, modern pre-capitalist, pre-industrial age. Yeah, I don't think they apply because essentially what happens with the 15th, 16th century particularly is that that productivity begins gradually to increase uh, with competition and, and uh, new technologies. And this this has the effect of eliminating some of those intermittent periods where people aren't working. It reduces the need for festivals or the opportunity for festivals for the ordinary folks. And it creates a, a kind of a new attitude on the part of the elites uh, that viewed uh, free time as a kind of a right of their status. And instead, elites begin to think, more seriously about work ethics, and certainly as we move from a time of the aristocracy to uh, to uh, uh, the development of industrial capitalists and uh, commercial merchants. You talked about something called a work ethic. Of course, the most famous work of sociology about the work ethic was Max Weber's Protestant Ethic and the Origins sure. of Capitalism. He argued that it came out of an existential crisis of uh, of the Reformation, of Calvinism. Right. What, what's your take on that? Is there a relationship between the history of, of this elusive ideal, free time, mm -hmm. and the Protestant Revolution, particularly Calvinism, right. which suggested that because God is so wrathful and so arbitrary, there never right. could really be any free time, or if there was, it would be so miserable, we'd be better off working because we'd be fearful of hell. Well, uh, Calvinism and the Protestant Reformation coincide with the beginnings of, of a new economic system. And so there are elements, uh, there are, there's clearly overlap, but, but you don't necessarily need Calvinism to have the work ethic. You could have it in Catholic countries. Uh, so you're not in the Weber camp, Gary. You you disagree with him? Well, I mean, I I, I think it's I think it's an exaggerated argument. I I, I do think that Calvinists, um, partly because of their, I mean, I, I went to Div school years ago, and I'd love to talk more about this stuff. But uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know Calvinists had a um, uh, an attitude. Uh, that it basically was was oriented toward the view that you needed to make your daily life um, orderly and 
essentially respectful of of what what God, I suppose, and to prove that you were chosen by God, you had to uh, work continuously uh, to uh, to to prove your your virtue. Uh, that's a little simple, uh, and that certainly is is something that the Calvinists um, uh, held, and they become in many ways uh, sort of the hall, the forefront, the vanguard of this uh, of this new work ethic. But it uh, it was far more extensive than Calvinism. Weber, of course, argued that um, that the Reformation transformed money into morality. Mm -hmm. I guess one consequence of that, and I'm interested in your take, is whether time itself was transformed into into a form of, of good or evil. It was, as you suggested, yeah. uh, the work ethic was rooted in spending one time, spending one's time productively, constructively, right. responsibly. Benjamin Franklin is perhaps the best example of that. Right. Um, so, was one of the consequences of modernity? to make time and particularly personal time a moral issue of a form of almost personal sure. hygiene well i mean at one level of course i mean this is a, a kind of a famous kind of calvinist statement that you should not waste god's time you know you're on this earth to uh, uh to serve god and uh frivolities of one sort like a festival carnival um uh, no fucking around, Gary. No, right? no, no, you know, give up cockfighting, give up bear baiting, give up sort of wild sports, give up these sort of disrespectful uh, antics that would take place uh, during traditional carnivals in Europe and the like, uh, and uh, and to uh, uh, to take seriously on a daily basis your, your commitment uh, to uh, to serve God, I suppose. Uh, and what, of course, happens over time is that you go from meeting house to counting house, uh, to paraphrase the name of a famous book about the Quakers, uh, insofar as you become more, more disciplined in your use of time, you get rich. <laughs> we are speaking with Gary S. Cross, the author of a very intriguing new book. Um, it's a New York University Press book, Free Time, the History of an Elusive Ideal. Um, we all have enough free time to, to read uh, Liberty's yeah. Courtly, an excellent new journal focusing on a lot of the historical themes that Gary and I are talking about. I'm uh, going to run a short feature on Liberty's, and then we'll be back with Gary to talk more about free time this most elusive ideal don't go away anyone no more free time for you this afternoon beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Gary S. Cross, the author of an intriguing new book, Free Time, The History of an Elusive Ideal. Gary, it's a history of the idea of free time. Who, who 
came up with the idea in your book have you have you identified the the author of this ideal or did it just somehow come about as modernity came about well it's kind of curious um while a kind of a rising group of, of let's call them bourgeois uh, bourgeoisie if you want to call it that uh began to insist on work discipline for workers and work ethics for the aristocracy they also carved up time uh to cultivate a, a different kind of way of uh, uh of understanding uh periods away from work uh they developed kind of basically i call them genteel values that were more subdued more refined based on ideas of self-development and and perhaps social engagement uh, led to things like taking care of pets and reading novels uh, uh, organized sports you know uh, um, as, as opposed to kind of free-for-alls all of that kind of thing and there began to develop a, a, a sense of uh, of the proper use of of one's free time that essentially contradicted the old carnival culture of of the peasantry and the and the traditional working class as well as the uh, frivolity of the rich and uh, that that those ideals are kind of still with us in the way that a lot of people think about. Uh, uh, the ideal form of free time. It sounds, in, in what you're describing, a, a, a gendered quality to this. As we get to the, the origins of modernity and uh, men increasingly began to dominate a workforce that was different in the agricultural age, was free time as an ideal? Was it something that was, and I use this word carefully, peddled by the, the female bourgeoisie, the, the, the wives of, of, of these early capitalists? Well, in some ways, what happens by the 19th century particularly is that um, the work ethic and the free time, shall we say, improving ethic, get sort of split by gender. Women become the, the, the sort of keepers of this genteel ideal of free time, through domesticity, uh, uh, the proper celebration of refined holidays like modern Christmas and and uh, and Thanksgiving, and which is a, a sort of a holiday to thank one for labor in an odd way. Yeah, I suppose. And and men were supposed to spend most of their time cultivating the the work ethic. So there there was that kind of split. Uh, on the other hand, men shared in in that in that culture of free time uh as well when they were off work and uh were supposed to uh, uh participate in games with families cultivating the arts all that kind of stuff gary you don't need me to tell you this but up until the middle of the, in the 19th century america maintained a system of slavery um yeah. distinguished it from the rest of the in industrializing world or the industrial world uh, at the time. 
we mentioned the gendered quality of this what about the racial quality and the way in which perhaps free trade uh, i was going to say free trade that would have been a, a freudian era free time was imagined in the south versus the north of the united states and particularly um in terms of the nobility of not working right. and of course the 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 the, the um the, the racial implications of that. Well, in certain ways, the South, uh, particularly before the Civil War, uh, adhered to this older idea of the aristocratic leisure ethic that preceded modern capitalism. And uh, like Aristotle before, before them, they felt that free time was a privilege of those who did not have to work. And, and of course, their free time was based, uh, uh, both Aristotle and the South, was based on slave labor. Um, by the 19th century, uh, uh, newer ideas uh, were uh, around that basically said that the new technology could make this free time available, not just for the, the wealth who, wealthy who owned slaves, but for for everybody. And this, of course, uh, leads to the idea of free time as being a natural right, uh, even a right of labor. So by the 1870s, one of the sort of famous refrains from a song supporting the eight-hour day was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. I mentioned earlier the, the bumper sticker in Berkeley about thanking the unions for bringing us the weekend where you and I are currently working, Gary. Um, as the working class in this industrial world acquired at least the promise of free time, how did they think of it differently from the what you call, I'm always a bit careful with this world, the bourgeoisie, Yeah, it's, it's, the, the wealthy? Was it well, uh, beer and beer and football for the working class, and 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 art and uh, walks in 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 the countryside for the upper class. Well, it was kind of curious if you were a member of a a union and perhaps a skilled worker. Uh, those their values were quite similar to the more genteel views of the middle and upper class. Uh, but but workers, of course, felt they had a right to do what they will. I mean, as the as the uh, the refrain went, uh, and that if this meant uh, going to cockfights or horse races or uh, or hunting or fishing or whatever, uh, that was uh, uh, that was their right, and no one should interfere with it. Of course, what happens in the course of the 19th and 20th century is genteel views of free time conflicted with what we might call carnival culture of the working class that eventually gets very commercialized with amusement parks and lots of other things. And uh, so you have a long period in which, which, the, in which these genteel folk uh, try to refine and sometimes control uh, the free time of, of working people. You see it in prohibition, you see it in controls of gambling and prostitution and attempts to impose uh, uh, highly regulated sports on, on working people. What about the rise of mass media, which seems to be in the 20th century, at least the way in which most people 
if they have free time, spend it watching television, listening to the radio, reading mass produced books. Um, was the invention of mass media in the 20th century, Gary, was it a way of, um, if you like, democratizing free time? So uh, the upper and lower classes, the owners of capital and the, and the wage laborers, they basically did the same thing in their free time? Well, the mass media gets very much democratized, beginning with things like phonographs, um, movies, of course, were in the first instance, pre predominantly working class. Uh, and then, uh, and then of and course- And black, of course, as well, very often. Uh, yeah, a lot of times. Uh, and then of course, the same thing happens with television. One of the really interesting trends in the 20th century is just how cheap media has become. Um, it's it's um, uh, astonishing. I remember my father bought a TV set in 1952 uh, it cost two hundred dollars when uh, when uh, uh, that was probably two months' salary for him, or at least a month and a half. And and now, of course, you can get a much better TV set for uh, uh, a few hundred dollars. Uh, and most people, Gary, these days, as I'm sure you you know, yeah. from your your children or grandchildren or the young people you teach, yeah. they carry their televisions around in their pocket, and those televisions are a lot more powerful and engaging right. and affordable than. The televisions of your father's generation yeah one of the things that media does and i sort of stress in my book is that it has the effect of sort of funneling consumption that it what it does is that it allows people at a personal level to which is the small part of the funnel to have choice and access to a broader world the wide part of the funnel uh, through uh, initially through recordings and then later through uh, electronic signals uh, that that we're used to, and this really changed a lot of ways the way that people experienced uh, free time. It led people to be uh, to have a, access to it much quicker. It was uh, and easier because you know we we get our media right off right off our cell phones. Uh, but it, it it had a tendency to hugely speed up uh, the uh, uh, turnover, shall we say, of media, uh, and in some cases even its intensity. And this uh, this was in a lot of ways a great advantage to people, but um, in some ways it's been disappointing as well. In terms of the history of this elusive ideal, Gary, free time. Has there been a diversion in the industrial and post-industrial world between the United States and Europe in particular, where yeah. people have more free time, where the state right. protects free time? In America, of course, notoriously, people work much harder than anywhere else in the world, right. but it also makes it uh, a wealthier society with a stronger economy. Sure. Well, one of the things that's curious that people don't know much about is that in 1919, at the end of World War I, when there was an opportunity for a kind of an international, shall we say, consensus about how to deal with free time and a lot of other issues, uh, there was a general acceptance of the idea of an eight-hour day across the industrial world and even the non-industrial world. Uh, Americans didn't sign the agreement 
that uh, was set up by the International Labor Organization for this general acceptance of the eight-hour day, although many people got it. Uh, in 1938, Americans went further than Europeans for a moment by in introducing a 40-hour work week uh, in a time when Europe was uh, getting ready for World War II. Uh, and for a while, Americans actually worked less than Europeans. But by the time Europeans recovered from World War II, that all had changed. Uh, Europeans began to get statutory vacations with pay. Americans have never had that. And uh, they, of course, got the 40-hour week and in some cases the 35-hour week. Uh, and so Europeans have, have moved in a very different direction. Essentially, there was a kind of a choice to be made uh, with increased productivity. You could either balance more free time with more goods or you could emphasize almost exclusively growth and increase of consumption with a heavy emphasis upon the work ethic. Americans chose the second option. And, and I'm this, guessing yeah. that you, you don't necessarily approve of that. You, would, you might argue that it hasn't made Americans any happier. Perhaps it's one of the reasons for the uh, epidemic of anxiety, mm -hmm. of uh, an increasingly therapeutic society. Um, many people argue, we've had many shows on this, that most people's work-life balances are out of sync, that they work too hard, and by the time they finish their work, they're too tired to enjoy their leisure. Is that your argument in the book? Well, I I, th I think so. Basically... What do you mean you is, think so? It's I, your I, book. I, 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 no, what I... Well, I mean, you're stating it rather starkly. I I, I think that... that uh, Americans work a lot more than Europeans. I mean, three or 400 hours more a year, that's substantial. And, and we have a culture that does not provide, Americans have a culture that doesn't provide for much, shall we call it, national support for things like shorter work weeks or family leave, paid family leave, or uh, vacations with pay. Europeans and, and others don't share that kind of hostility to legislative means of improving, shall we say, ordinary life. And I do think it's, it's harmful. I think a lot of Americans also have a very strong uh, work ethic and uh, that's something that uh, perhaps comes from um, the uh, the influence, the Calvinist and uh, Protestant influence of our of our history. Um, and so, as a result, a lot of Americans are still somehow comfortable with working, especially long hours, that Europeans find strange. Gary, last week I saw a wonderful new movie. I'm not sure if yeah. you've seen it. It's called How to Have Sex. It's not actually about having sex. It's it's a, a movie about how young English people perhaps don't know how to have sex or don't know how to enjoy themselves. I don't know if you've any spent any time on Greek islands in the summer. It's it imagines it, it it's a film about how 
young English people go to places like Greece and drink themselves stupid in two weeks uh, and the two weeks or week mm -hmm. of vacation. Um, when it comes to free time in the early 21st century, perhaps in Europe and certainly in America, do people know how to use free time or is that an inappropriate, a rather bourgeois question? You seem to have a degree of nostalgia for the agricultural world where people drank themselves stupid in uh, and parted, uh, which is what young English people now seem to do in Greece. Um, is, there, is there a correct or an incorrect free time, or is that the wrong way of thinking of it? Well, if you're talking about, I mean, one of the curious things about what happens when the eight-hour day is introduced and even the weekend is that there is at least some decrease in alcohol drinking, uh, you know, uh, games of violence. Uh, in certain ways, um, working people's lives became more domesticated, more more directed around family life, um, and in 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 some ways soberer. You know, if that's the right word. Um, uh, so, in certain ways, those old genteel values that I talked about. Uh, that were developed in the 18th, 19th century have, in a certain sense, trickled down uh, to, to, to working people. Um, on the other side, capital, uh, capitalist consumption has hugely expanded, uh, creating not just a lot more ways in which to, to consume during uh, your free time, but to kind of virtually saturate your free time with consumption. I call this sort of fast consumption. And that's something that um, uh, that kind of contradicted uh, the, the hopes and ideals of, of genteel folk like, well, John Maynard Keynes, who predicted in 1930 that by 2030, we'd all be working uh, 15 hours a week and, and uh, you know, uh, it was always a, it's a very odd prediction from Keynes, of all people, who, of course, was an aristocrat and perhaps yeah. the most productive writer, thinker, economist, intellectual in, in the 20th century. I'm not sure whether he was bemoaning it or celebrating it. Um, I, I, I think he thought it was inevitable. And he um, was wrong, wasn't he? I think he would. Of course he was wrong. and But his thinking was essentially that people would choose to, shall we say, balance free time, hopefully in a cultivated fashion, with uh, income and work. Um, and that, of course, hasn't happened because uh, consumption has increasingly saturated our free time. Keynes, I think, was thinking about what's sometimes called slow time, a more relaxed way of spending more hours. Uh, what's wrong uh, there? You keep on using this work. term consumerism, Gary. What's wrong with using your free time to go shopping and spending money and having fun? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure there's, there's anything essentially wrong with it. But on the other side, what it does do is that it, it, it creates... Number one, the need to work more in order to spend more. We have a kind of a work and spend culture. And it also, of course, uh, it also creates a bias in favor of consumed time as opposed to sort of 
slow time that is perhaps less intently, intensely um, built around media and built around uh, goods. Are these critics of advanced capitalism, in a way, are they, is, is their critique similar to the genteel bourgeoisie who arose in the 18th century and thought the right way to spend free time was walking in the woods, or looking after oneself? I think to some degree that's so. I think some of us, I mean, I'm not one of those. I think that uh, the old genteel attitude very and very un, uh, uh, unsupportive of working people's ideas about free time. What's wrong with hunting and uh, and, uh, and well, so we, we should celebrate. You're gonna you, you're gonna have to go and see how to have sex, uh, Gary. Yeah, I guess young and, English people spend their free time. Finally, yeah, progressives, of course, have uh, who are idealists, and we're talking about an ideal uh, free time. They've always imagined that technology could free us from labor, from from Rousseau to Marx's German ideology to people in Silicon Valley, like my friend Albert Wenger, the author of The World After Capital. Is there, are we falling into another mythology, another intellectual ideological trap here? Can technology free us, Gary, from labor? And represent the beginning of a, of a golden age of free time or is it always an elusive ideal like the the roadrunner always always one step ahead of us i'll put it this way technology can free us from labor and from work time but to do that we need to have new ideas and new values about first of all the need for more free time and second about about our obsession with uh, with more goods, faster consumption, growth, and the like, and there uh, that change is uh, a, a change in attitude uh, is really a long ways off. You've and exhausted me intellectually, Gary. I'm so tired after this that I'm going to go and have a nap. Is that a my favorite afternoon activity. It's free. It doesn't involve any consumption. Is that okay? I'm, I'm thinking of doing the same thing. <laughs>